you know, one of the advantages of being the preacher, I don't have to do children's church. I think I appreciate the people that do. uh, I think that's great. Um, Before we move into the sermon, I will take that uh, statement I read earlier, which I wrote in yesterday, so I'm sure it can be perfected in many ways. Um, but I'll post it on our Facebook group or uh, so you, those of you can um, go look at it and see what I said. So, Anyways, if you would turn to the very end of the book of Hebrews, this is our last, our, our 24th and final sermon in the book of Hebrews. So we started in January and uh, now we're coming to an end. Um, and I think providentially we move into Proverbs uh, next week, and it's all about wisdom, and in light of everything going on in our world, wisdom is surely something that we need, so uh, encourage you with that. But today we're going to wrap up Hebrews, uh, the very last uh, six verses, Hebrews 13, verses 20 through 25. So please listen carefully as I read God's word. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. We need it as much as that first Hebrew congregation needed to hear it. Make our own Uh, ears, be hearing ears, and our hearts, be listening hearts, to learn what you have to say to us. So we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would press it home, and as we just sang, make our hearts believe. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are numerous places in both the Old Testament and the New Testament where God's people are referred to as sheep. And that used to bother me a lot. Because once you learn a little bit about sheep, you discover it's not a very flattering comparison. Mainly because sheep are stupid and fairly helpless. Sheep are in desperate need of a shepherd. They wouldn't make it without a shepherd. When you look at all that a shepherd does for the sheep, you begin to get an idea of the pervasiveness and the power of the grace of God. First, sheep are creatures of habit. They walk the same path, eat in the same pasture, lie down in the same place, even when the path, the pasture, and the place have been completely worn out. They'll keep coming back even if there's nothing good left there because they've always done it that way. It takes a shepherd to move them to new paths and new pastures and new places to rest. Second, sheep are helpless and weak. 
If a healthy sheep with a full coat of wool were to roll over on its back, it can't get back on its feet. It would just lie there and kick its feet in the air, like some of your children. And maybe some of you adults, although I haven't seen that lately. But it takes a shepherd to notice that it's in trouble and to go get the sheep back on its feet. Third, sheep are quarrelsome. They fight and butt heads and constantly challenge one another. And they won't on their own stop and rest. It takes a shepherd to walk into the flock and by his mere presence, the quarreling stops and the sheep find a place to rest. Fourth, sheep are relatively defenseless. They can't fight off mortal enemies. It takes a shepherd to do that. They can't even fight off petty irritations like flies and gnats. Unlike cattle, they don't have long tails to swat the flies. And unlike dogs, they lack the ability to scratch themselves, so they just stand there and suffer. It takes a shepherd to anoint their heads with oil to keep the flies and the irritations away. Fifth, sheep are scared. When danger comes, the only thing they can do is run, and they don't run very fast. Nearly any dog can outrun sheep, not to mention wolves or lions. So they frighten easily and stampede at even a minor surprise. And it takes a shepherd to be the eyes and ears of the flock, to see farther than the sheep can, to intercept the surprises, and to prepare the sheep for the shocks, to calm the flock uh, by his presence. So now we can better understand why we're told that Jesus is the great shepherd and we're the sheep, because we act just like them. We're creatures of habit, even when the habits turn bad. We need Christ to move us on to new paths and new pastures. We're weak and helpless. At our best, we're just a step removed from being helpless. We have very little to be arrogant about and much to be grateful for, and we need Christ to watch out for us and to pick us up when we're fallen. We're quarrelsome. And like sheep, we love to butt heads. But petty bickering and competition evaporates when we have the sense of Christ's presence among us. Uh, we're defenseless. Satan is described in God's word as a wolf and as a lion. And we're no match for him. But Christ is. And we can get wrapped up in all the petty issues and minor irritations of life. But Christ is concerned about every burden and every disturbance and can handle them all. We tend to panic when life's surprises show up. But Christ already knows about them and he is preparing us for them. And he's the one who calms us down when they come. You can see why Christ is such a great shepherd. His grace has no limits. And over and over again in our study of this book of Hebrews, we have said that it's emphasized that Jesus is better. We're told that Jesus is better than Moses. Uh, Jesus is better than the high priests. Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus is better. And that's why this passage at the end of the book of Hebrews is so important. Because it reminds us, despite the trials and tribulations, we have a great shepherd. And so there are a number of things that are taught here that we need to know and accept. And I'm going to go through them one at a time. First, we're to know and accept his passion. Apparently, we're doing peas today. His passion. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, 
by the blood of the eternal covenant. So a few things we need to understand about the passion of Jesus Christ. Just as the New Testament builds upon the Old Testament, so understanding God's peace, and it says now may the God of peace, understanding God's peace here in the book of Hebrews builds upon our understanding of God's peace in the Old Testament. And Hebrews relies very heavily on the prophets. And uh, from the prophet Jeremiah that we read, Jeremiah 29, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now that phrase, plans for welfare, is literally plans for shalom. And that's the Hebrew word for peace. It's not by accident that this promise of shalom was given to God's people when? When did Jeremiah say this? It's at the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. They're getting marched off into exile. And he says, I know the plans for you. Plans for welfare. To give you a future and a hope. And it appears that Israel's done for and there's no way to survive. But God is reminding them as they're being carted off, I'm the God of peace. I will work it out. I will turn it into good. So call on me and pray to me and seek me, and then it will go well with you. In the same way, beginning in the final passage of this letter, with a reference to the God of peace, is a reminder to this little Hebrew congregation who's scared, whose hearts are full of fear, that your God is the God of peace, and he'll pick up the pieces no matter what happens. He's going to heal your wounds no matter how deep. He'll fulfill whatever good thing is lacking in your life. No storm will be able to sink you. He gives you his peace, his shalom. So that's what we get first. The, the second part is a reminder that everything God has promised in the book of Hebrews is promised because of the blood of the eternal covenant. Specifically, the passion of Christ is for our best, our peace, is promised because it's built on a special foundation of a new covenant in Jesus Christ. And again, the reference for the new covenant in the book of Hebrews comes from the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, God promises, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This promise is nothing less than a new heart and a personal relationship with God, achieved because of the atoning sacrifice of Christ, established by the blood of Christ, ratified by the resurrection of Christ, and guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So why is the passion of Christ found in God's peace and God's promise. Because Christ is the great shepherd. Christ loves the sheep. We're the sheep. Those Hebrew Christians were the sheep. 
Jesus loves the sheep. In the Gospel of Mark, we read in Mark 6, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. In the Gospel of John, Jesus told his disciples in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. And here in Hebrews 13, we're told that Christ is not only the good shepherd, he's the great shepherd. Why? Because he's risen from the dead, and he's now exalted at the right hand of God. His compassion and protection of the sheep are from on high. All other shepherds pale in comparison. But it's not enough to know about this shepherd. You also have to accept him and his work as personal, as having been done for you. He said, my sheep know me. They listen to my voice. And if Christ is your shepherd, then you must know him. Not just know about him, but know him. Know him as well or better than anyone else you know. Anyone else. It's so important that you know and accept the passion of Christ who loved you so much that he laid down his life for you. That's first. Second, you have to know and accept this power. Look at verse 21. It says, Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in thus that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. As we've already said, we're pretty helpless without a shepherd. But now that we have a shepherd, and he's a great shepherd, there's a couple of things he does for us. And the first thing we see is that his equipping changes your doing. His equipping changes your doing. The word equip here is used several different ways in the Bible. Matthew uses this word to describe fishermen mending their nets. Paul uses this word in Galatians to restore a brother. Luke uses this word to describe a doctor setting a bone gives you the idea here, to repair things that are broken so they can be useful. Except in this case, it's to repair us so that we can be useful. Which means we have to admit that we're broken. His equipping of us, his mending where we're torn, his restoring where we're fallen, his setting where we're broken, all changes us. It changes what we're able to do. Just as you can't fish with torn nets and you can't walk with a broken leg, uh, we're pretty helpless to do God's uh, will. We need to be equipped. And we need the shepherd to fix what's wrong in our lives so we can do what's right in his eyes. And so it says we're equipped with good things to do his good will. His equipping changes your doing. This passage is designed to teach us that God has not left us to live the Christian life on our own. Hopefully that's an encouragement to you. I have this cool honey lemon tea stuff. There's actually no tea in there, which is good. Um, I don't like tea. But, uh, I mean, think about what I just said. You don't have to live the Christian life on your own. Jesus didn't save you from your sins and say, okay, you're on your own. Do 
Do the best you can. Live the Christian life. Don't screw it up. I might say that. But God doesn't say that. God saves you and equips you, and that's good news. This is a simple benediction. It's a blessing. It's built around that first phrase in verse 21. May God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Everything else is built around that phrase. And the main blessing which the author of Hebrews is pronouncing on this congregation, pronouncing on you and me, is that God will equip you with everything you need in order to live the life he's called you to live. In other words, God graciously equips his people to do his will. That means if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God supplies you with the resources that you need in order to do what he calls you to do. It's incredibly important. It's an incredibly encouraging thing. You know, one of my favorite prayers from the, it's a classic book, The Confessions of uh, uh, St. Augustine. Or Augustine, if you're from Florida. He has a prayer in there. It's one of my favorite prayers. He says to God, command what you will and give what you command. Augustine's one of the great ones. You should look at that. Get one of the modern language versions. Um, But he's saying, Lord, you can tell me to do anything that you want me to do as long as you'll help me do it. Please don't command me to do something then withhold from me what I need in order to do what you've commanded, because I have a fickle heart. I want to do it my way. I don't want to do it your way sometimes. So when you command me to do something, give me the ability to do what you command by the grace work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And that's exactly what's entailed in this blessing is being pronounced on you by the author of the Hebrews uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's saying God has not called you to do what he wants you to do in your own strength. He's equipped you to do what he's called you to do. He's equipped you to lead the life, to live the life that he's called you to live. That should be incredibly encouraging. And so if you don't feel like you're equipped, you've got to ask, what do I need? Where do I go? How do I get that to do what God's called me to do? I want you to see the foundation of that here. His equipping changes your doing because his enabling changes your being. His enabling changes your being. Paul tells us in Romans that God's plan for our life is to make us like Jesus. Romans 8 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Being made more like Christ is to be conformed to his image. But as most of us discover, being like Christ isn't something you just go out and do. You don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be like Jesus today. You may say that, good luck, call me, let me know how it goes. I'll pray for you and you probably should repent. Um, Because it's really hard. It's really hard. Because it's something that happens to us over a lifetime. It's not an instantaneous thing, you know, tomorrow I'm going to be like Jesus. It's a lifetime of having Christ. It's a lifetime of being indwelt by His Holy Spirit. 
a lifetime of having uh, God the Holy Spirit work the Word of God and change our character in our lives over years and years and years and years. So that as Christ is loving, the Holy Spirit makes us more loving. I told you earlier, one of the things we have to be in light of the new culture that we live in, or the new recognition of the culture, it's, I don't think the culture has actually changed that much, but we need to be more loving. Jesus is loving, the Holy Spirit needs to make us loving. As Christ is peaceful, the Holy Spirit needs to make us more peaceful. There's lots of fear among Christians, among you. There's lots of anxiety, there's lots of depression, there's lots of concerns and burdens and just life. We all would like to be more peaceful. I know there's two or three of you that are just amazingly peaceful and, uh, you know, we're insanely jealous. Uh, most of us aren't that way. And, uh, but Christ is. Christ is peaceful. And so as Christ is built into our lives, as we're conformed to the image of Christ, we become more peaceful. As Christ is patient, the Holy Spirit makes us more patient. Nobody wants to pray for patience because God gives you opportunities in which to demonstrate that gift of the Spirit of patience. We just want Him, you know, Lord, make me patient right now. Um, what I'm trying to say is God works into our lives those things that are pleasing to Him. And what pleases God is His Son, Jesus, and it pleases Him when people are being made more like His Son, Jesus. And so it's His enabling that changes your being. It makes you less like sheep and more like the shepherd. His enabling conforms us to the likeness of His Son. And it's God's power that equips us to do His will, and it's God's power that enables us to be pleasing to Him. So it's vital to know and accept His power. Another one of my favorite prayers of Augustine is this one, also comes from the Confessions. And uh, one of the things, you should read the Confessions, put it on your list of you know, the books I have to read before I die. It should be on your list somewhere there. Um, but he says, and I love this, Lord, everything good in me is due to you. The rest is my fault. What a great motto for understanding what this passage is about. Everything good in me is due to you. The rest is my fault. Whenever we see progress anywhere in the Christian life, it's due to God's work in us. And we don't get to say that we're the ones who produce our own holiness. God is at work to help us live the life we're called to live. So you have to know his passion, his power, his principles, verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. I love that sentence. Remember the next time you sit down to read through the book of Hebrews, the writer says, I have written to you briefly. If you read through it straight through, most of you it would take about an hour. So if a brief letter takes about an hour, I'm going to start preaching brief sermons. Actually did last week, but not this week. He does urge the people to bear with my word of exhortation. An exhortation is like a sermon, and that encourages and urges people to follow God's principles. And the writer has done that. Philip Hughes, a great commentator in the book of Hebrews, says the book of Hebrews reads like a sermon written like a letter to friends. What a great description. A sermon that sounds like a letter to friends. 
And if you read this out loud as it was originally meant to be, it would take you just under an hour to read it out loud. And that's what the author of Hebrews intended uh, to happen. He sent it to the church, and their pastor would stand up and read the letter out loud to the congregation. So imagine yourself, you're in that place, you've heard the letter, we've come to the end, um, and some of the things he said have been quite challenging, and some of the things have been very convicting, and some of the things he said have been frightening, and some of the things he said have been baffling, and some of the things he said have been glorious, and at the end he says, bear with this brief letter. They've been read to for an hour of all these things. And repeatedly throughout the book of Hebrews, he urges his friends to some fresh endeavor or renewed dedication to Christ. He constantly uses the phrase, let us then do something or be something. So recurring emphasis on the importance of the word of God to the life of the believer. The truth is not merely a message to read or a story to inspire, but principles to follow and instructions to be obeyed. So now that we've come to the end of the letter, we have to ask ourselves, what have I learned from the book of Hebrews? That's a question for you. What have you learned from the book of Hebrews? Has it made any difference in your life? Has your worship of Christ increased? As we come to the end of this book, do you love Jesus more? We know and accept Christ. We know and accept his passion, his power, his principles. And when you can get all that about Jesus, and it changes who you are and what you do, then you're in a position to know and accept his people. Look at verse 23. It says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall See you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. See, there's a concern in the book of Hebrews that goes beyond knowing and accepting the doctrine. It even goes beyond knowing and accepting Christ. There's a concern that because we know and accept the doctrine and we know and accept Christ, we come to the point of knowing and accepting his people, which is the church. Other saints, other members of churches, other members, other churches. The whole church. I don't think we excel at that. We may excel at loving our people in our group, in our church. But you know, there's those other denominations and we're reformed, so we're right. You know, and we can be among the most arrogant of groups. But there's a point of that other Christians deserve our acceptance. All God's people, not because of what they've done or whether they agree or disagree with all of our doctrine, but solely because they belong to Jesus. And everyone who belongs to Christ belongs to everyone who belongs to Christ. The writer repeatedly emphasizes the gathering together, the fellowship, the encouragement of other Christians. And so it's fitting that at the end he reminds us to greet one another, look out for one another, show hospitality to one another. These are God's people too, just like you, and we're to know and accept them in our flock because they have the same shepherd, the Lord Jesus. 
Now, I'll be the first to admit, all of this is easier said than done. So how do we do it? We can only do it when we get the very last part. Verse 25 is to accept his provision. And that's grace. He says, grace be with all of you. And it's not just a nice way to say goodbye. God's provision for doing his will and pleasing him and accepting his people is grace. It's all by grace. This whole book has talked about grace. In teaching us about Christ, we're told Hebrews 2, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the sufferings of death, so that by the grace of God, he may taste death for everyone. Christ died for us by grace. Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We approach God through prayer by grace and for grace. Hebrews 12, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. We're warned to look out for each other, so no one in the church fails to obtain the grace of God. Hebrews 13, we read last week, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Our hearts aren't to be strengthened by ceremonies or traditions, but by grace. Grace, grace, and more grace. That's God's provision for his people. But grace isn't given so that we can lie around in the old ways of sin and refuse to change. See, if you have a propensity to sin, any kind of sin, but you don't do that thing, you don't think of that thing, you don't chase after that thing, because you know you'll be held accountable by someone else, a friend, a parent, an elder, somebody you pray with. But if you knew that nobody would ask, if you knew that nobody was praying for you, if you knew that no one would find out, it's likely you go right back to doing, thinking, or chasing after that sinful thing. And the only reason you're avoiding that sin is because of what others would say or what others would think. You don't really have a changed life. You're just managing your sin. And God doesn't call us to sin management. God calls us to change lives. And the book of Hebrews teaches us that our lives are changed by Christ and for Christ in order to worship Christ. And the change in our lives is all of grace from beginning to end. And yes, in the references to grace in the book of Hebrews, we see first the Christian life isn't easy. There is hardships and suffering. It demands our best. But we also see that God doesn't leave us to our own inadequate resources. He meets our needs. He provides grace for the day and for all of our life. But most of all, he provides for us because in his grace, he has given us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. He's the one who changes our life now and forever. Amen. Amen. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close.
Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Thank you that you've given us this book of Hebrews, that you've told us you've given Jesus to us as our true King and our perfect prophet and our great high priest, and that he is the great shepherd of the sheep. Thank you for the book of Hebrews. And we ask now as we close our study of it that you would bless the spiritual truths to our growth in grace, that we might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Drive these truths deep into our hearts and make our hearts believe no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter what is going on in our country, that Jesus is better. Help us to believe that and live that. Amen. Amen. Let me say before we finish that if uh, I offended you earlier, I apologize, that was not my intent, uh, but since my spiritual gift is probably total depravity, it's not hard for me to do. Um, but I would be happy to d talk uh, with you about any of the comments that I made. Uh, earlier. Also, there's one correction in the bulletin. We have a newcomer's lunch. It's July 12th. It says June 12th. It's July 12th, and that's basically for anybody who's not a member and has questions about the church. And so we'll get more information uh, about that uh, out to you. Or there will be a new members class coming at the beginning of August. So look forward to that. Let's go to our passage for today, Hebrews 13. 20 through 21, one of the most famous benedictions in all the scripture, and best way to end this book. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. And ever, amen, amen.